This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and over on Twitter at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's uh, podcast titled Reading the Break, which you can find on his website, peterkessler.com, on readingthebreak.com, over on SoundCloud, or even on our site, nextonthetee.net. No one knows more about the history of golf than Peter does. Those of you who are like me, you've been watching Peter since he helped launch the Golf Channel back in 1995. His show, Golf Talk Live, is by far the best golf show there's ever been. Peter has also interviewed every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. And you know, we've been lobbying for Peter to be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame for his lifetime achievements and the contributions that he's made to the game of golf. My ultimate day, folks, you know, a round of golf at Augusta National, but that would be quickly followed by sitting on the veranda of the clubhouse listening to Peter tell stories. It just couldn't get any better than that. Good evening, Peter. How are you, my friend? Uh, after that introduction, I'm doing great. I was so down and depressed, but all better now. Thank you. <laughs> you bet, Peter. So, uh, Peter, you probably heard my last guest, Debbie Doniger. She sends her best regards to you, and and uh, I know that uh, she has known you since, you know, she said practically her whole life. What do you remember about Debbie? Well, you know, it's funny. I I, I joined you just as she was talking about skin cancer, and I knew Debbie when she was, oh, eight years old, maybe nine, and her dad, Bill Doniger, belonged to the same club that I played golf at in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, it, it's uh, it's funny strange as opposed to funny haha. but in thinking back about Debbie and the son when she was a girl, and I watched her probably from eight, well, really, even when she went to college and would come home from college, I would see her. But she was always sunburnt. She was always sunburnt. She was darker than anybody else. She had she didn't have the kind of skin that lent itself to getting real darkly tanned, but rather she would get burned, and so she had a fairer skin than you know. If you're there's there's six levels. If you're you know if you're a four or five. Um, and you're Caucasian, then you can handle the, lot su- the sun a lot better than if you're a lower number. And uh, and she was always sunburned as a kid, so you know, not shocked to hear um, that she would have issues. But you know, at that time, you know, there wasn't nearly the kind of information that there was even a decade later about um, you know the kind of protection that you could use to put on your face and all these uh, differing degrees of of, uh, of strength of protection. And, you know, she, she wasn't using it then, and people weren't. I remember even in the 60s when I would go with my mom and my younger sister to the pool that she had one of those shields that she would put down 
that would reflect the sun onto your face. And it was like a mirror. And everybody had them in the 50s and 60s. And everybody who, you know, went to, went to a local pool would have these these shields and they would reflect the sun and people weren't wearing anything to protect themselves. I mean, it was a completely different time. So I understand how she, you know, how she ended up having a problem, even though, as I remember, I don't think that ran in her family. But she was a really wonderful player. When, when she first took up the game, she definitely had an affinity for it. It reminds me of the Lydia Coe story when she was four or five. She went to a range and somebody gave her a club and she just started hitting good shots. And and somebody pointed out that she had like ideal natural hand action. And Debbie Doniger really had uh, a natural feel for the game and uh, played some really good golf. Uh, was competitive as a teenager. She wasn't big. Uh, she wasn't tall. She was you know maybe Debbie's maybe five four or so and um, and and. A appropriate weight for her height and um but, but she could she could play and she had a really good short game and she played in college and uh yeah she it was a wonderful family and uh and I'm delighted to see how well she's doing and I'm not surprised that she's made her way in the golf world good for her I'm glad she's got the radio show and we we stay in irregular touch but uh I'll always be a fan of hers and uh I think just great things about her and she's somebody you definitely want to tee it up with because I'm sure she can still break 75. Peter, I, I want to spend some time talking about some, some parallels that I started to see between uh, the careers of Bobby Jones and Tiger Woods. Because if you go back to the 1930s, right, so at the end of Jones's career, there were some young upstart guys winning a bunch of tournaments in the 30s, Henry Picard, Gene Sarazen, those guys, Sarazen winning, you know, four all four majors between 32 and 35. Those guys, you know, in the 30s started to become the story in golf, just like today we see some of the younger guys, the Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomases, becoming the story on the PGA Tour. Yet when Bobby Jones agreed to come back and play in what was then the Augusta National Invitational, what would become the Masters, his comeback became the story. It overshadowed everything, like, like Tiger now. Right, Tiger is now the story, whether he is or not. Right, you know, it felt like to me Jason Day was almost an afterthought that he won. Tiger finishing tied for 55th seemed to get all the headlines. Do you see parallels for what what it was like for Jones and and his comeback and all of the attention and the media surrounding it to what we see now with Tiger? Well, it's it's different because. When Jones retired in 1930 at the age of 28 from formal competitions, you know, he, he wrote a note and said, gee, I, you know, at some point I, I may, you know, show up at championships, but I'm done with championships for now. And really the only reason that Jones played in the 34 Masters was he was encouraged to play because he was the host of the golf tournament. And Southern Company Manners at that time, as a host, meant you participated in whatever the activity was. So he reluctantly played in the 34 Masters, but he knew how important it was, as you suggest, from a media point of view, in getting the thing jump-started. And what they did that was so clever in 1934 to put the Masters on the map immediately is, one, they had Bobby Jones. And Bobby Jones was the most golden hero of the golden age of sport, even more so than Babe Ruth or Jack Dempsey. I mean, he was the guy. So 
for Jones to be putting on a golf tournament at which every great player showed up except for Gene Sarazen in 34 because Gene had made a commitment to do some exhibitions in South America. And, of course, he played the next year and won and completed the career slam. So the just the appearance of Jones at the tournament was huge in terms of public interest because it was overstated that Jones was coming back. He wasn't. He was just going to play in the event, and he didn't play anything until the next year. So, you know, it wasn't like he returned to championship golf. The other thing that was going on was that the greatest sports writers of the time, one of whom was a member, Grantland Rice, who was just, you know, as big a name as you could possibly have in terms of sports writing, including golf, who wrote a, a biography of Bobby Jones, um, along with O.B. Keeler, who was uh, a journalist who traveled with Jones to every one of his major championships, and with Jones wrote all of the things that Jones wrote, and he chronicled everything that Jones did, and you know he was you know really really his companion. And but Grantlin Rice was a member of the club and a big shot at the time, and so what Jones and Clifford Roberts, the co-founder of Augusta National, decided to do was to hold the golf tournament right after the exhibition baseball season was over in Florida. So they got a special car for the sports riders, and they delivered them from Florida up to Augusta, put them up in the Bonaire Hotel, took really good care of them. And so all of the greatest sports writers showed up at the very first Masters, and they were treated uh, like royalty, and they were enamored of Jones, and Jones had just retired a few years before, so his star was still pretty bright. And so it was written about, you know, extensively during the week and, and after the, the championship was over, and that's what helped put it on the map. But when Jones came back, it was to play reluctantly as the host, and I think he finished tied for 13th, and that would be the best finish he would ever have in the Masters. And he was on record as saying in the first round, which he uh, played with Paul Runyon, Jones said that on the second hole, which was actually what is now the 11th hole, he had about a 20-footer for birdie, and it was a big rainbow putt. And he said as soon as he hit the putt, he realized that the magic was gone. He realized that he didn't have the touch that he had that allowed him to win 13 of the last 21 majors in which he played. And and because he realized instantly the magic was gone, he he didn't have great expectations anyway, but he certainly lowered them at that point. And he never really could handle the greens that he and Alistair McKenzie built at Augusta National. He always had problems with it from the time it was built going forward relative to the kind of putting display he had put on from 1923 through 1930. Now, in Tiger's case... You have somebody who's actually trying to make a comeback, and so the frenzy is is greater because in Jones's case, I think he played down expectations that he would do more than play as the host of the golf tournament. In Tiger's case, you know, people are hoping that, you know, the, his biggest fans are hoping that he's going to win tournaments and win major championships again and be competitive in important events as he was, you know, for a few weeks earlier this year. So this is a comeback. And 
Um, and, you know, and Tiger's trying to make his mark as opposed to playing celebrity golf, you know, which is really what Jones did at that point. He was playing as a celebrity, playing as a host, as a, opposed to playing as a competitor. But Tiger's playing as a competitor. But the expectation of Jones's arrival on the golf course was tremendous for its time. And, of course, the expectations at the golf tournaments that Tiger shows up now are humongous. And at the Players' Championship, I expect the crowds will be very large. He, of course, didn't play well last week, and uh, you know everybody rises and falls with how he does, and he didn't play particularly well at the Masters either. Never got himself to where he wanted to be for the weekend. So you know this is uh, this is a work in in progress, and uh, this is not a course that you would think of for Tiger at this point. I mean, he's won on this golf course, but and he did it when he won the Grand Slam, so he had the Grand Slam plus the players, so he had all five at one time um, after he completed the Masters in 2001 to complete the Grand Slam. The month before, he had won the Players' Championship, but, you know, in those days, he was the straightest player around. Everybody thinks he did it with his chipping and putting, but in 2000 and 2001 and 2002, he put the ball in play. He at greens and either he made the putt or he missed the putt and he went to the next hole. There was very little recovery shots. There was very little chipping and putting. Everything was three-quarter-ish. I mean, I was with him at the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble and I walked 67 of the 72 holes with him and uh, it was... He just put the ball in play, and then he would hit the green, and you know, and he would have a ten footer, and he'd make a bunch of them, and he missed a bunch of them. And but I mean, you know, there was, you know, there were a few, you know, acrobatic shots during the week, and a few that demonstrated his power. One iron in particular that he hit to the par five sixth hole, which was particularly dramatic from a long way away, and it wasn't a long club. I think it was a seven iron. It was a couple of hundred yards, and it's straight up a hill, and you know, he put it within you know makeable eagle range, and so he had a few fantastic shots in demonstrating his power, but basically he just put the ball in play. And that's what you've got to do at this golf course this week is you've got to put the ball in play. And so Tiger has not been putting the ball in play. And it's, you know, you look at the history of the winners and it's a lot of guys who just put the ball in play as opposed to, you know, the biggest hitters. Dustin Johnson has not had a fun time at the Players' Championship over the course of his career. A lot of the big knockers have not. Um, so the expectation for Tiger this week needs to be muted a little bit, but he can hit a lot of three woods and he can hit a lot of stingers. I remember watching him the year that he won and he hit that stinger with the two iron a bunch. It would go like 20 feet above the ground and then it would just kind of fall to the left. It was a little bit of a draw, but a little bit of a fall, but he could just put it in play on every single hole. If he will adopt a conservative strategy this week from the tee, and there's every reason to think that if I think of it, he's thought of it, that, you know, that uh, he could actually put himself in play because he's still the most ridiculous iron player. I mean, he was number one in greens and regulation a few times in the early part of his career and found himself close to number one on other occasions. I mean, his iron play is just such an underrated thing. It was for Jack Nicholas too. They, you know, par threes were actually the place where Tiger and Jack had their biggest advantage, not par fives, because they both hit the ball so high and the ball sat down so quickly and they would hit less club than other people into the par three hole that they were hitting it higher with a shorter shaft, with more control, with a ball that just sat down, didn't spin back, didn't bounce forward. And that was where they had a huge advantage was their ability to play shorter irons and higher stopping, fast stopping shots on the par three holes. And so anyway, Tiger needs to put in play. And if he can, he can play. 
And Peter, going back to something you said a moment ago about Jones's putting, right? right now we're seeing Tiger struggle on the green. Same thing happened to Jones when he played in the Masters. Amazingly enough, he was still hitting his drives 280 to 300 yards with that equipment, which I find absolutely astounding. But in the 34 Masters, Jones couldn't even make the little short putts. And Hogan so, you know, went through the same thing with his putting. Is this just rust? with Tiger, or is this something that we've seen other great players go through after they've had an extended layoff? Well, you know, the the, the putting is the thing that goes first. You know, Arnold sensed in the early 60s when he was in his early 30s that his putting was starting to elude him. You know, at the he was the best player in the world from 1958 Masters roughly till the U.S. Open ended in 1962, which he lost to Jack Nicklaus at Oakmont in the playoff. And for the 90 holes, Nicklaus had one three-putt, and Arnold had 11 three-putts. And Arnold, by 64, was having trouble with his putting, and certainly against Casper in 66 at Olympic, where he lost the seven-shot lead with nine holes to play in the U.S. Open at Casper, he had some putting issues. And, uh, you know, Seve wasn't winning anymore after that. Um, Tiger won his last major championship at 32. Watson at 34-ish. Couldn't putt anymore after that. Very few guys retained their putting. Nicholas kept it for his whole life. I saw him not too long ago. I said, how are you putting? And he said, I am just as steady over it now as I was when I was 25. And that's saying something. Gary Player was remained a good putter for his entire career. Um, Billy Casper remained a good putter for his entire career. Lee Trevino remained a good putter for his entire career. That's about the list. I and mean, Hale Irwin was able to take it uh, to take it deep into his career. You know, he was always a good putter, but then he actually became a better putter as he got older. Funnily enough, made so many birdies as a, as a senior. Um, so what Tiger's going through now could be problematic because, you know, here he is in his early 40s. And, you know, I just on one hand have figured out the guys who, you know, were still putting good in their early 40s. So, you know, it's not a great list. Phil wasn't putting good at this age and Phil's been putting better this year. And he's worked his fanny off inside of six feet. I mean, it's very obvious his stroke is much better inside of six feet. He used to have trouble taking the club back too far, and he'd decelerate, and he lost a lot of tournaments missing inside of five feet. Major championships could be problematic for him. And so he's always been a kind of a streaky putter, I think, and um, and he's enjoying some success right now, and he's working hard at it. So this is a big question mark for Tiger because it he isn't putting badly, and he doesn't have the yips, but he's not making anything, you know, and that's what Arnold said to me. I said, so, you know, so how did you know, you know, that it was trouble other than you started missing? And he said, yeah, I, he said, you know, I, he said, putts that I used to just hit right in the middle of the hole. He said, if it had a little break, he said, all of a sudden I might be a little too firm and, and, and play it too high, or I might decelerate thinking I had set it, set up the blade too high on the intended starting line and I would ease into it. And he said, so I started losing my touch to make putts. And so what we don't know is how is Tiger's touch? We know he's not been making a bunch of stuff and he hasn't really made a bunch of stuff all year since he started this comeback, but mechanically he looks very good to me. I, uh, the putter seems to be traveling through the same space in the sky that it has historically. His posture looks the same the way he's 
arranged himself over the golf ball and his ball position looks the same to me. There's a little hinge going back. There's a little release going through, which a lot of guys don't do, which is what Rory McIlroy did when he wanted Bay Hill because he had seen Brad Faxon. And Brad Faxon said, loosen it up. He said, let the putter head go to the right of your hands going back. Don't don't make a shoulder stroke. Heck, have a little, a little play in your wrists. Have a little play going through. And Tiger's always had that. Jack didn't do that. Ben Crenshaw did do that. Bobby Jones did do that. Billy Casper did do that. Lee Trevino did not do that. Greg Norman did not do that. Uh, actually, uh, Greg was right in the middle. I, I remember there was a, a time when I felt like uh, there was some good play in his wrist, but generally he was pretty pretty solid and a lot of shoulder strokes. But So the Tiger question is, you know, really one that we're going to have to find out over the next few months as the season now, you know, starts to accelerate to the last three major championships and the Players' Championship is, of course, this week. And those aren't the hardest greens in the world and they're not the most undulating greens in the world, and their greens a tiger can certainly handle, and he hasn't demonstrated any problem with touch on 30-footers on undulating greens. It just may be what Arnold told me, hey, a little too firm, so I'm missing it high, a little decel, missing it low. He knows what's going on. He knows what to work on, and we'll find out if you can regain your touch. You know, he was born a great putter, and I'm hoping that he's just temporarily um, finding it an elusive thing and that he'll be able to put his hands on it again. Peter, you you mentioned when you were talking about Tiger and and the and the, and the players, right? He held all five at one time, right? For for years, maybe forever, people have talked about the the Players Championship being sort of like the fifth Beatle, right? It, it, the, the media always wants to talk about is it the fifth major? Will it become the fifth major? Is that something that's just the media stirring the pot? Or is there still someone you think within the tour that is pushing for the players to maybe eventually become a major? Well, I mean, of course the tour wants it to be characterized as a major and accepted as a major because, you know, unlike other sports organizations, I mean, the NFL controls the Super Bowl, but the PGA Tour doesn't control any of the four major championships. So, sure, they would like a fifth one to be, you know, their major championship. You know, the Masters runs the Masters, and PGA runs the PGA, and the USGA runs the U.S. Open, and the RNA runs the Open Championship. And so, of course, they want it to be. But I liken they're asking this to be characterized as a major championship as somebody like, you know, somebody who's a member at Augusta National. And if you ask to play, it's probably no. And if you ask to become a member, it's a definitely no. And I think that uh, what, you know, they're going through at the tour level is, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing it to be a major. They're trying to get it to be a major. They got all the guys on the golf channel saying it should be a major, except for Frank Novello sticking to his guns of four majors. You know, and Brandel takes the view that, well, it's got the, the biggest field, so it's the hardest tournament to win, but it's really not because if you look at the winners, it's not the greatest players of all time, really. There's a lot of, you know, okay players on that list. Um, you know, Jack won it, but he didn't win it there, but he won it three times. But uh, you, you can't force it, and they've tried to force it, and it's not happening. And there's four majors, and the Players' Championship is a hugely important tournament. You know, but I right after the four majors, you know, if I was a player, you know, the ones that I'd be most interested in winning, I'd want to win at Riviera. 
I would want to win at Muirfield. I would want to win the Players' Championship. I would want to win the Tour Championship. But I'd be good with sort of any of those. And the weakest golf course, quite frankly, is the course that the players will play this week at TPC and uh, the stadium course. And, you know, the uh, the other courses, you know, that I just mentioned are, are better golf courses and you'd like to win on those. So, you know, winning at Riviera because everybody shows up. Everybody shows up at Jack's. Everybody shows up at the players. Um, you know, every, the 30 best guys show up at the Tour Championship. So that's a trickier one because, you know, it just shows that you played well all, all, all year long, but it's such a small field. But, you know, that's a super, super event to win. So it's right there in that grouping, and maybe it leads that pack, but it's certainly not in the top four. Those are those are chiseled in stone. You know, that's Mount Rushmore. There's, there's no more rock, and Michelangelo is not going to create uh, a, a another face on that mountain. Peter, last week I was joined by Tony Jacklin, and Tony won a couple of majors, did some great things, particularly in the Ryder Cup and back in the 80s, both as a player, you know, way back when, obviously, but as a captain in the 80s. Give me your thoughts. How do you characterize Tony Jacklin's career? Well, he happens to be a really good friend of mine and has been a good friend of mine for a very long time, over 20 years. And we've played golf together and we've hung out together and we've done a bunch of TV and we did print and we did radio and uh, we've gone uh, together on uh, speaking engagements. You know, Tony, uh, you know, grew up in Scunthorpe, England, and he would hit uh, he would hit balls really off a piece of rubber from a tire to you know 20 feet away I mean he had nowhere to hit the golf ball and you know as a teenager he got a job in the pro shop and he turned pro and while he was in his teens when he still wasn't a good player and but he quickly became a very very good player and when he came over to the United States uh, Jack Nicklaus was really good to Tony and uh, took him in and you know showed him the ropes of playing over here Tony was still a young man at that time in the in the mid 60s and and his first tournament win was uh 68 at Jacksonville and that's really what got him going um because he built up a lot of confidence he beat Arnold and a few other guys that week and um you know and then the next year uh he went ahead and won the British Open at Royal Lytham and St Anne's by a zillion shots and you know, every time we talk about it, I always steer him around to the ninth hole, the final round, and he says, yeah, he said it wasn't over yet, and I was really nervous, and I had a 30-footer, and I hit it 10 feet too hard, and hit the back of the cup, went straight up in the air and straight into the cup, and he said, and then I relaxed, and I played a, a really good final nine, and um, he was playing with uh, Bob Charles, and uh, they it, it came down to the end of the tournament, and uh, Bob drove first and said, oh, it's in a bunker and I'm in terrible shape. And Tony said to himself, that ball's perfect. And he went ahead and beat Bob. And actually, when they were coming down the back nine, in those days, the clubs were made differently. And, you know, if you had a wood, there was, you know, string, what was we called whipping in those days, kind of a nylon string that wrapped around the bottom where the, the shaft and the hosel would meet. And Bob Charles's... Uh, um, started to come unraveled 
and uh, they wanted to go back into the pro shop and have somebody deal with it. And Tony Jacklin, who, of course, had worked in a pro shop, knew how to deal with whipping on clubs and knew how to, you know, take care of clubs and fix whipping and, and put new whipping on. And so he sat down on one of the tees and took Bob Charles's clubs and fixed the whipping for Bob and then gave Bob a whipping. And uh, so, of course, he won that year. And then, you know, he won won the next year. He won the U.S. Open. So he had both titles at the same time. And then in 72, you know, it looked like he was going to win the Open Championship again at Muirfield. And Nicholas went out in front of him six shots behind and shot six under. And what's forgotten is that Jack bogeyed 16 and didn't birdie 17. So it was kind of his fault that he didn't end up winning that tournament because he wasn't able to close it out after going six to seven under for the first 15 holes. And, and Jacqueline and Torino were playing behind him going, we better get going. And they both eagled nine and uh, came down to 17. And Tony was right in front of the par five, 17th and two. And Lee had missed three shots and now it was over the green and four. And Tony had a very, very simple, straightforward little chip. I mean, it couldn't have been any more straightforward. And, and he hit, didn't hit a good chip hit it to about 15 feet where a 12 handicapper would have hit it to 15 feet from where it was. It was a really, really rank shot. And then Trevino chipped in, and then Tony three-putted, missing the last one from, oh, 30 inches, no more, hit a little pull. And all of a sudden, Trevino, chipping in for par, had the one-stroke lead, and he raced to the 18th tee and hit his shot before Tony was even there just to keep it moving, and he didn't want to start thinking about choking. And and Jacqueline went and bogeyed that hole, too. So Nicholas finished second, and then there was Jacqueline. And Tony just said to me a million times, he said, after that happened, he said, I was just never the same again. He said, I just he said, I just never had the confidence. I didn't feel like I could compete anymore. There was part of me that felt like, okay, well, you won both open, so you did that, and, you know, and you, you're, you're, you know, a super player. And, uh, and he said, and I never got it together again. And he said, you know, just was a spiral from that point forward. And then I had some other issues. And then I had some money issues. And then I had some you know, marriage issues. And he said, but, you know, he said, my game just, he said, I was never the same after that. And then, of course, you know, little did, you know, could we have guessed that, you know, he would go on to an even greater triumph in terms of the, the sport by becoming the successful four-time Ryder Cup captain in the 1980s. And, you know, he changed, Tony changed everything. I mean, you know, when he was the captain for the first time in 83, you know, they didn't have, like, good clothes, and they didn't have good bags, and they didn't have a decent belt and a good shirt and sweaters. and a real mess. You know, like, plastic shoes that somebody gave him and junky bags. And Tony changed all of that. And he got, you know, the Americans had always been dressed beautifully, and everything was first class, and... Uh, they were you know, they took care of themselves and they were taken care of and so Tony changed the whole culture of the European side so that it would be like the American side and he he was the first person who came up with the idea let's have our own private room to meet in because funnily enough up to that point they would kind of meet in one of the players rooms or you know a bunch of guys sitting around on the beds I mean it was completely absurd and you know or they would be in the bar or they would be a corner of the dining room Tony got in their own meeting room and you know and got them to be confident and of course he had Seve Ballesteros you know well all the well Savage Seve and Sandy Lyle and Bernhard Longer and Nick Faldo I mean it was you know Dickey and Woosnam um, later, Colin Montgomery. I mean, it was, you know, a ridiculous group of guys, you know, all born really around that year of 1957 that Seve was born. And 
Um, so he had, you know, ridiculous talent for those four Ryder Cups, but he made them feel so differently about themselves. And, um, you know, and then he ended up having, I think they won twice, lost once, and tied once was, I think, the record. But they had never done anything before. I mean, nobody had even paid attention to the Ryder Cup. I mean, you know, the thing really started in 26, and it was totally informal. And Sam Ryder was a successful businessman who actually – came up with the idea of selling seeds in little packets. And I remember when I was a little boy, you could buy, my mom would buy us seeds and, you know, they'd, you'd get a little thing and you'd put the seeds outside and whatever it was would grow. And, and they were, uh, they were pen, a penny a packet and he made a fortune. And his teacher was, uh, a Mitchell who was an English pro. And so when he had the trophy made, he had the top of it look like a Mitchell swing. And, and then it started formally in 1927, and the Americans were just better players already by then, and you know really just you know kicked their fannies for you know you know decades and decades, and you know, nobody made any money from it, nobody got paid from it, there was no television, there was no anything, and then and nobody really cared about it until the 80s. Then it became a big deal, and then there was the big thing with NBC and the contracts and. You know, and people started showing up for the first time. I mean, I, I went to Ryder Cups before the 80s. There was nobody there. There was nobody there. And I was like, nobody there. And it was like, oh, how many people are watching the best players at your club? Nobody's nobody there. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, it became big business. And that's where the PGA made their money. And that's where the USGA made their money was when the U.S. Open became a big television, you know, product. And, and then they took over the concession to sell all of the merchandise. That was the big turnaround. The last concession that was held before the USGA got a hold of theirs, the rights to sell the merchandise, was 1997 at Wingfoot. Tom Neoporti was the head pro, and and the head pros would have the concessions at the major championships, and they would have the shirts made, and they would sell the shirts, and the pro would make the profit, the club would make the profit. and. You know, they saw how many shirts sold in 97. They said, that's the end of that. And then that's when they started the merchandise tent right after that. And, of course, you know, the merchandise at the Masters, they do $50 million every single day. And you can't buy it online. Can you imagine how much they would sell if you could buy it online? So they obviously don't need the money because somebody did probably suggest that if they sold it online that they would make billions <laughs> and billions of dollars. And Tommy Aporti was a very interesting guy. He... He was really the last club pro that I can think of that won a PGA Tour event. And it's funny because uh, Claude Harmon was the head pro at Wingfoot and won the 48 Masters by five shots. And then uh, Tom Neoporti ended up succeeding him, and he won the Bob Hope Desert Classic in 67. And he was driving from tournament to tournament on the West Coast in a station wagon and in a lot of pair of black shoes. And for the final round of the Bob Hope that he won, he mismatched a pair of black shoes. And afterwards, they're sitting up with Bob Hope and uh, President Eisenhower and his wife, Mamie Eisenhower, and they're taking a break. And Mamie Eisenhower looks down at his shoes and sees that he's wearing two different shoes and kind of looks up at him and he goes, yeah, I got a pair exactly like it in the car. And uh, he was uh, he, he was uh, he was a terrific guy. I, I saw him a lot. I used to live very close to Wingfoot and played a lot of golf there. 
And uh, but Tony was, Tony was, you know, uh, just just a, a wonderful player for a very brief period of time. He too lost his putting, lost his confidence. Young man, huge mark as a Ryder Cupper, and uh, you know, and he hasn't been forgotten. And he does a lot of outings, and he's got a few good sponsors, and uh, he makes some uh, interesting. Uh, figures out of he carves wood and he's made the faces of a zillion great players and uh he's actually very talented he doesn't really play much golf i could probably cajole him into playing around if i went down and see him he's just a couple hours away but you know we've been friends for a long time and i just think he's a lovely guy and he's very relaxed and you know love jack and love arnold and love gary and he, he's he's i think he's happy with what happened well, Peter, before we let you go, do what we always ask you to do, right? Remind remind our listeners, how can they follow you, stay up to date with the great things that, uh, that you're doing and that you've done over the course of your career? Because there's no better storyteller than Peter Kessler. I don't even know what I'm doing, so I don't even know how people can find out what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure it all out. I, I'm trying to... Uh, get myself in a position where I can do some shows again where I would host and do a variety of things, some like the Golf Channel and some other ideas that I've got. But, you know, the same sort of thing, interviewing and hosting and and researching and writing and voicing and all that stuff. So I'd like to do some stuff on camera again. And I'm working with some people that may turn out to be something, in which case we would have an online presence and uh, try to cobble together a lot of new content. And I've got some ideas for some other people that I like to have appear on camera that have not been asked um, that I think could do a really great job and, you know, have a few different hosts, have a lot of content of a lot of different kinds. So I'm working on that. I, I, I have seven podcasts on my website, peterkessler.com, and my bio is there. And I'm, I'm working. And I stopped doing the podcast because I've been writing a book, and I've been putting the stories in the book instead of the podcast. And so I can't figure out quite what to do there. I'm going to try to do something else with the podcast. I may do something on YouTube. I may do something on Facebook Live. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a bunch of ideas. So probably the next go-around, when we get to the next major, uh, hopefully I'll uh, be in a little uh, more solidified shape and I can share what I'm doing. Well, Peter, no matter how much time I get to spend with you, it's never nearly enough. I can't thank you enough for being back here tonight, for how generous you've been with your time. You are just the very best, and there's just no other way to say it. No matter what you do, no matter how you've done it, whether it's on podcasts or on radio or on TV, you're the best, my friend. Thanks, buddy. Well, I I, uh, I love being on the show. Uh, you 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 promote me like crazy off of the show, and I'm very very honored. And you know, I I I I heard you about the World Golf Hall of Fame thing, and you know, just just to take it seriously for a second. I if I had continued to bang out TV shows for another ten years beyond the seven or eight that I did then something like that would have been more likely and then adding the radio to it. But I think I haven't been quite visible enough for a period of time that's long enough that if I can put together another gig that will allow me to do a lot of programming over, say, another 
you know, five to ten year period and I can complete the contribution, you know, and then, you know, then maybe I fall into the category of people that would be considered. But I feel like there's much left to be accomplished and I haven't done enough by any standard yet. But if I got a crack to, 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 to bang out some more stuff and do it for another five to ten years, then it would be a pretty cool portfolio. And um, I don't know if the World Golf Hall of Fame is the answer, but it will have certainly satisfied me if I can uh, have one more go around. Well, you know, I'm rooting hard for that. And anything that we can do to uh, to promote that or uh, or let people know about it or whoever we need to talk to, we're we're certainly all about it. Cause, uh, and I mean it sincerely. You're the best that's ever done this. Well, thanks, buddy. I I was certainly th- uh, taken aback the other day when I saw your new picture on social media, and I went, now, wait a minute. Is that Chris or is that Bob Redford as Sundance and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I <laughs> I I, I had to take take a second look. So you're looking good, and I love the show, and I love what you do for golf, and you make a huge contribution, actually, to sports in general, too. But uh, your contribution to golf is just absolutely incredible. It's really, really consistent, and the quality of your work is really consistent. And that's that's the thing. It's not just having, you know, the platform. It's delivering consistently every single week. And that's what Jack did at the top of his career. That's what Tiger did. And you do that. You do that every time. I hear your show, I go, it's really, really good, and it's really, really consistent, and it's a very hard thing to do in any walk of life, but you've totally nailed it here, and I've got a great deal of respect for you. Well, I appreciate that very much, Peter. I look forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Thanks for being here again tonight, Peter. I appreciate you very much. You've got my number. Talk to you soon, pal. All right. Take care, Peter. You too. That is the great Peter Kessler, and like I say, you know, very sincerely, um, he is the greatest of all time. There's no question in my mind, and uh, hopefully he gets the opportunity to get back behind a mic or, or a, a television camera because uh, there, there's just no one better at uh, talking golf than Peter Kessler. So we, uh, we got our fingers crossed for that. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.